0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's Talk Show, this time with Andy Lyons, co-founder of one of the longest-running football fanzines, When Saturday Comes, which emerged in early 1986, just a few weeks after the launch of my own zine, Off the Ball. For some listeners, this will be a gentle jog down memory lane, to the time when to be a football fan was to be regarded with suspicion and mistrust by respectable society. For the rest of you, i uh, regard it as an enjoyable history lesson. When I met Andy at the WSC offices near Aldgate in London, he told me how the magazine started.
1: Well, myself and my friend uh, Mike Tisher, we worked together in a record shop in London, Kensington High Street. Uh, and Mike had done a couple of issues of a music zine. There was a period when, this is 1985-86... There was a whole kind of zine culture around kind of indie music especially at the time influenced by the weekly music press Anime and Melody Micra and so on and we used to talk a lot about football in kind of down times when we weren't sort of serving people in the shop and stuff and he he said maybe the scope for doing a sort of football spin-off of this music zine so we put together one issue just fo- sort of photocopied stuff um, and uh, he sent a copy of it to The Guardian the, they had a weekend diary column and we had like 200 letters the following week and we'd only photocopied like a hundred so we had to do like a second run of that and so it clearly there was a bit of an interest in it but it, it developed very gradually after that I mean it wasn't a full-time job for anybody for a couple of years initially it was only once every couple of months then once a month and so gradually um, we got a, sold into W. Smith and so on but it was started in a very small way, and we had no idea even that there were other zines around, we discovered after we started that there were already some other club zines going. So it was already separate from us a whole zine thing beginning to develop for some of the same reasons that we wanted to get involved, which was football had a terrible image at the time, seen as a law and order problem, all that kind of stuff. And we felt a bit defensive about being football fans and wanted to put the perspective of the sort of the, the regular fan.
0: For people who weren't around at that time, just just explain that defensiveness then, because obviously football now is about as mainstream as it gets it it's everywhere maybe we've even passed peak football who knows but it was very different in the mid 80s Yeah,
1: I think for anybody who didn't follow football they would understandably have a very negative sort of perspective of what football involved, that a lot of football fans were were hooligans, that that whenever there's any kind of violence around football it would always be reported on the TV it got to the point where certainly I think I'm right in saying that ITN news didn't even used to give football results uh, The midweek football, they made a conscious decision not to give midweek results because they thought there wasn't quite enough public interest anymore crowds were down, partly because of problems associated with violence and let's not decide that there weren't problems um, but also there's a sense of there was a lot of hostility aimed at football fans from people in authority from the government and from the police and the sense that it was being used as a political issue as a way of kind of demonizing ordinary people and especially in mid-80s with all these other things going on in the UK with miners strike and so on a uh, feeling that um, football was being targeted this is actually pre-Haisal but certainly post-Haisal as well football was being targeted by the authorities.
0: And what kind of fan were you then? Who did you support? How often did you go?
1: Um, I was an Everton fan. I'd moved down to London to go to college here in 1981. I previously used to go to a lot of home games and and some away games. Once I was in London, I went mainly to away games, and I'd go to home games if I was back visiting relatives. Um, But gradually, I sort of got out of following them on a regular basis during the 90s, actually partly because I had friends who followed different teams in London, for kind of social reasons as much as anything else. I started to go to various different places, Brentford, Fulham, Watford at various times. I now live near, my nearest team now is Millwall. I've got one friend who's a Millwall fan, although um, she's a Japanese woman, so a fairly un- unusual Millwall fan, I would, I would say. Um, so I, I sort of, it became for me more of a social thing. night. So I still go to the occasional Everton game, and I still not got one or two friends who are Everton fans, but I'm more, I got used to more going along as a more or less neutral spectator.
0: And Mike, of course, was a Chelsea
1: fan. Mike was a Chelsea fan, and he got involved early on with the Chelsea Zine and with the Chelsea Independent Supporters Group. Obviously, Chelsea a very different club in those days. Ken Bates was the chairman. There's a lot of dissatisfaction amongst Chelsea fans about the way the club is being run. The club, the team itself, had a bad period. They had a relegation in the late '80s. Bates was one of these people who talked about a lot about doing things like putting different sorts of fences up at the stadium, all this kind of stuff.
0: Electric fences.
1: I Electric. Electrified fences. Yes. Well, he, yeah. He, he, we had to be careful about what we said about. About what he claimed about that, because there, but there certainly it seemed as though he had suggested uh, electrifying fences at some point. Though that he was a bit litigious on that kind of issue, so we probably have to <laughs> even now we'd have to be a bit careful about it. But um but yeah, so Mike got involved, and of course Chelsea also had a bit of a still do to some extent have a bit of a problem with kind of kind of right wing. Uh, fans and the, the Chelsea Independent Supporters Group and the people who did the zine that he was involved with, which is called the Chelsea Independent, had a bit of flack occasionally at Chelsea. So even within uh, a club like Chelsea, the, the, the development of a zine culture did sometimes lead to people sort of forming sides, I think, within the club a bit.
0: And certainly uh, at off the ball, certainly you with when Saturday comes and most of the club-based fanzines as well were very supportive of the Football Supporters' Association. They kind of gave a lot of the issues that were being discussed in the fanzines a kind of point of attack.
1: Yeah. Well, I first heard about Off the Ball, actually. Mike and myself went to the first London meeting of the Football Supporters' Association, which was around February, March '86. It was just before we'd got WC ready to come out. But Off the Ball, somebody at that meeting had a copy of the first issue of Off the Ball. So we thought, oh, there's, there's another one of these, you know, someone else is doing one. Uh, and that was the first sense we got that this was already beginning to sort of develop as a fan movement so the FSA which started in Liverpool in eighty five, post-ISIL by a couple of people who'd been at ISIL um, and that was also in its very early stages but that, um, that and the various different independent supporters groups that developed at clubs that campaigned on particular issues to do with their club, to do with the chairman or to do with the stadium and stuff like that they, um, all those things developed um, escalated very quickly in the late 80s I would say
0: and uh, the football supporters association critical in in driving that campaign against what the government described as a membership scheme for fans but which you and i would have described as an identity card scheme for fans
1: yes the id card thing was actually passed through parliament and was going to be introduced but was then scrapped in the wake of hillsborough so you could sort of say, well, that was in a way a bit of a defeat for the sort of the burgeoning fan movement in a way, the fact that they got as far as passing it. But the, the, the Conservatives had a majority in Parliament at the time and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a widely popular thing in the country as a whole and obviously not widely popular amongst football fans. Um, but the FSA, in, on on that issue and on several other issues, certainly helped to sort of bring together a, a, low, a, a range of concerns that the supporters had around the country.
0: Talk to me about the attitude of the... The mainstream press at the time towards football fans.
1: Um, I think journalists were very protective of their turf, as they saw it at the time. They, they there was relatively little football writing in the press. Certainly, the broadsheets had a lot less than they do now. Where both broadsheets and tabloids use their football coverage to, to compete with one another, it's a kind of big selling point for them all now, which it didn't used to be. I think. Journalists were a bit sniffy, certainly about the zine thing, the sense that um, there were these people who weren't professional journalists who hadn't sort of um, cut the mustard doing the, the stuff you have to do to become a journalist, work on local paper and do match reports, all that sort of stuff. And they wanted to be the um, the gatekeepers, the sort of the people who are giving the public a perspective on what was happening in football. And I think they were a bit wary of there being an alternative perspective being presented that wasn't coming through them.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking as well, though, of the... The, the kind of the, the news coverage around football i mean it, it is a cliche but it's true i think that football fans in the mainstream tabloid press were very much seen as football hooligans and, and not much else yeah
1: i think it's certainly the case that whenever there was any it became a what's it called confirmation bias thing that whenever there's any kind of football related violence it would always get onto television it would always be covered my local club of Millwall and obviously yeah, Millwall do have some problems but I, even having lived in Birmingham now for 25 years I'm conscious of the fact that whenever there's anything that happens with Millwall specifically it's always mentioned the way that wouldn't happen if it involved Brentford fans or Brighton fans or whatever and that, that is that does happen um, but certainly a classic case I remember with that was a bit later actually in the 90s ahead of Euro 96 when there was talk about what will England fans be like when we have an influx of foreign and visitors and stuff, and there was some trouble at a Darlington v Hartlepool game. I'm not sure which way round it was, but it's like and they had footage was shown on national TV, and it's like literally 10 fat blokes trying to hit each other. And they thought, Well, you could have seen that any time in the last 150 years, you know, it's not. And the, but the, the, the tone of it was, This is the last thing somebody literally said, more or less, This is the last thing we needed before Euro 96. Thought, Well it's it's that's just a social that's just a thing you know it's it's ridiculous to sort of amp it up into into some sort of crisis.
0: Mm. Uh, I would say as a fan I kind of felt besieged because there was the the tabloid press who I felt had it in for me there was the government who I felt had it in for me there were football hooligans who I felt had it in for me as well you know as an innocent law-abiding fan but who liked to stand on the terraces there were people I know who would give me grief as well and the police. It seemed, had it in for me. They treated everybody uh, as one undifferentiated mass of supporters.
1: Yeah, well, um, unfortunately, as we saw uh, in relation to what happened at Hillsborough, which is obviously now the subject of another uh, big court case, um, th- the way that fans were perceived led the police to not think through the way they ran the way, the way they organized themselves around matches the way the corralled fans way way fans were treated that led not just to Hillsbridge which obviously by far the worst instance but there were several other in, in, in situations as well where were, uh people were, were injured entirely necessarily because the, the the police completely messed up the way they um, sought to to crowd control ahead of a game and that really that uh, lack of awareness of how to deal with football crowds was rooted in the sort of contempt, I think, that that police had. That's not to say that there weren't issues of violence around football, but it, w- it was too easy, and which is why they did it, to sort of to tar all fans with the same brush, I
0: think. At what point did, when Saturday comes, become self-sustaining? And kind of what was that moment like when you realised you could give up your day job and, and actually do it full-time?
1: Um, well, there was... In 1988, uh, Mike had actually moved to Australia by this point, and there were two other people who got involved in the MAG on a semi-regular basis. They both just left college. And the government introduced... I had a full-time job, but the government introduced this thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which is basically a way of, of fiddling the dole figures where you could get some money for a year if you started a business or were already running a business, and that removed you from, from signing on and so on. And So we found we could get some funding for a year. So 88, 89, we got this kind of sort of salary... By the end of that period, the mag was just about able to generate enough income to pay for three people to work on it. Even at that point, it was was selling less in the late 80s than it's selling now. We had a few little bursts of publicity. We organised this trip to Albania in 1989 for an England game, not particularly because we were interested in England, but more because it just seemed like a good thing to do and a kind of unusual thing to do by coach to Albania. By the early 90s, pre-Premier League, it got to the point, yeah, we had... By that point, I think probably more than three uh, full-time staff. The whole process of doing the mag was much slower then than it is now. Everything was typed, Um, obviously pre-internet. There was nothing done electronically. Um, The magazine was laid out um, by hand and so forth, paced up. So we needed a lot of people to help because it was a very slow process. And by then, the zine thing had got the club zine thing had escalated to the point where there were probably I don't know three hundred or so zines at its heyday. So there was a whole. I suppose support network in a way because a lot of the zines would mention that us and we had a listing in the back of when Saturday comes we list all the zine addresses and change contact details when we were asked to and so on every month there'd be new zines for us to mention so the a sense it was a whole ecology really had developed over that, over that five years or so
0: but Did you say that you are selling more copies now than you did in 1989?
1: We are um, overall um, we, our, our peak period was the mid 90s where our best kind of six month average was about 35,000 the single biggest copy we sold sale was 40,000 which is
0: post-94 World Cup. So that's 40,000 copies in one month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're um, averaging 35,000 copies a month. 35, yeah. yeah. Um, but then that was
1: before, the, the, the other big thing that then happened in football was there was a sudden arrival of several glossy magazines, of which 442 was the one that started, that started late 94. And within the year, there was another three, Match of the Day, which still exists now, but is now a kids' magazine, plus Goal and Total Football, all launched by publishing companies. And that was in the wake, that was a couple of years after the launch of the Premier League. Obviously, those magazines were much more, I suppose you could say kind of Premier League branded sort of products, really. To some extent, maybe influenced by the Zine thing, but um, largely aimed at, at reaching, I, th- I suppose, what was seen as a, a new readership for football.
0: You've obviously had to evolve. What What are the changes that have you've wrought over those years?
1: I'm, I'm not sure if we have evolved very much, actually. To be perfectly honest, I've, I've got shorter. Man, my, my, my ears have got bigger. um I think, and when I say we haven't evolved much, I, I, that is, in a way is almost a conscious thing because we do a survey most years to get some idea of what the readers think about this and that. Um, but essentially, I always felt that we have to trust our own judgment, a bit like the old wreathian idea of the BBC, that you give people what you think they should have. We have to trust our own judgment, really, and, and not be too concerned about what the readers thought unless we've got a huge wave of opinion about one, one thing or another that we should need to take note of. Essentially, we've always set out to just you know provide a platform for as we always used to say provide a a platform for intelligent fans to talk about football in a a, a wide variety of subjects to do with football assuming that most of our readers are people who even if they follow a one team are also uh, aware of developments in football as a whole so they're football fans in general as, as well as just being kind of partisan fans and that's still the case now I mean our readers have obviously got older as we have so in the 80s, early 90s, our readers were probably in their 20s and people who read the music press at the time and so on. Now they're kind of middle-aged and we're, we're conscious that we do—we are trying to reach younger readers as well. But I, I don't think our, uh, the outlook on the mag and, and what we've done has really changed. There was a the whole sort of lad magazine thing that developed in the 90s. I don't think we were particularly affected by that really. There's probably a little bit of an overlap then between... Our readers and people who read those kind of magazines, and those magazines also influenced the other football magazines at the time. But by and large, I think we've just almost like consciously
0: just relied on trusting our own judgment, really. Mm. Have you ever had any really big issues, any run-ins with people who run football clubs or any kind of legal issues that (laughs) have kept you awake Um, at night? We've
1: had a few legal things, mostly because usually we've been a bit clumsy at not, more tightly editing things that were said and that if somebody chose to take offense at a certain thing they may do there's been a couple in the last two or three years but mostly that that n- not major things where we've said something that that's blatantly untrue about someone it's more that we've uncautiously whatever the uh, uh incautiously incautiously phrased something Somebody found out about it. It's much easier these days to especially Google yourself. You could find you know, anything is written about you. And there was one club chairman, I won't name who it was, who phoned us up when we were finishing the issue, actually, and said that he was intending to sue us over something we'd said. And, in fact, he'd, what had happened, he'd Googled his name, and we'd, we were putting up an online archive, and we'd, it was something that we'd said about him eight or ten years previously, and he'd only just seen it and thought it was new and so he then phoned back. Someone had obviously in the interim had advised him of this, and he phoned back was much more conciliatory. So you get those sorts of things happen occasionally. Um, but we, you know, obviously you have to take care because we really couldn't afford a proper legal... So we have had the occasion thing we we settled for a token one pound in the lawyers fees kind of thing but um we weren't really in a position to do what you call proper investigative stuff but something like private eye can do because they do have a huge amount of funds behind them you know and we can't really afford to do those kind of things we're running the risk of being closed down so we we've had to tread carefully a bit over the years
0: Mm. well is there anything that you've done over the years that you would say stands out immediately as the thing we're most proud of doing
1: Well, the thing that's most popular that we've done is a review of a book by Tim Lovejoy, actually, which kind of crystallised a lot of things that people disliked about modern football and the way that football was presented on television and celebrity culture. It was an article. uh, Our book reviews are usually about half a page, and I thought, well, maybe we could expand this into a bit having seen the book uh, into a bit of a bigger feature so about once a year we sort of we um retweet it or a link to it and it gets a huge amount of um it, it's kind of like an annual almost like a christmas tradition or something like an mm-hmm. annual tradition taylor parks a former music writer wrote this um i think you can say evisceration of tim lovejoy so that that was that, that was something that people seem to really appreciate in general the stuff i I like or I remember are, are just i suppose funny things that um are, that were where people have described a particular experience they've had that obviously resonate with a, a, a wide number of people. It was nice. Uh, Marky Smith uh, was a reader of the mag and he used to send his Christmas cards. i got a collection of those. That's quite good, isn't it? Um, I put a couple online when he died, actually. I, n- I never really said anything about it at the time because, it, you know, sort of thing, because we used to send him, He'd quoted something from a mag in an interview, so saw a melody group in about 1989. And I thought oh, we must read WC. So I sent him. Sort of uh, got hold of his adventure, got hold of his address, or somebody. He, I wrote to him via record company, he gave me his address and stuff. So I met him a couple of times, and then he used to send his Christmas cards. Um, so that was good. Uh, John Peel, we met a few times, and he wrote a forward to our, a book we did of reprints. There's one or two other people were uh, situations where well, the people who I quite liked, any, you know, I admired anyway in various ways, who were interested in the mag, and that was uh, nice. Um, Arthur Hopcraft, who wrote a famous football book in the 60s called The Football Man, used to have a subscription. I never actually met him. Uh, and that was great as well, because his book, that particular book, is one of the great um, works of kind of football writing, I think. So over the years, it, um, but we, we've had, a, I suppose, a few people who, relatively well-known people who've, who've read The magazine, stuff. but mostly it's kept going because we've maintained, I suppose you could say, kind of a, a relatively uh, loyal readership, people who've subscribed and who continue to subscribe.
0: Yeah, and... Uh, it- I don't know if you're willing to share your kind of current general circulation uh, on tape, but you're not doing too badly. But you know, compared to most magazines, I suspect that are published by mainstream publishing houses, you wouldn't get published, would you? I guess.
1: Um, no, I think uh, what I would say is our. our Rate of decline is less than the, than the, than the industry standard, <laughs>
0: which is like a politician's answer, but it is actually true. Well, as you say, mm. you're selling more now than you, you did in the late 80s, which yes. is something. Yeah, and, I
1: mean, and we, we, do, we do okay. What we, we do is we have these spikes where a, a couple of issues a year will sell really well. If we do a pre-season supplement or if we do a, a World Cup preview that has a poster with it, those sorts of things otherwise for the rest of the time we kind of tick over now, the foundation of, of the Magrid is subscribers, we have as many subscribers as, as people who now buy in the shops obviously the shops do Smith, Smiths etc, print uh, magazines in general have a problem with, with ha- selling in the high street because of uh, companies like Smith have been badly affected by Amazon and by online uh, retail and so that's, uh, that's a little bit of a, of a problem for us we're, we're not going to be in a position where we don't supply Smiths, we're going to keep on Doing both uh, subscriptions and and print and mm. publishing, I think,
0: um, and and a bit like uh, Private Eye, then you've made the decision that predominantly your product is available through print I mean you do print excerpts online but you haven't got a massive presence on social media on the internet Mm. this is still what what some people might regard as a a kind of an old-fashioned product who knows that that it's time may come again but a magazine that is printed and lands on your doorstep once a month
1: I think a lot of people just like to have a physical object you know in the same way that loads of different forms of media haven't didn't actually go ever never went away vinyl coming back after the launch of CDs and and sort of downloads radio survived the development of television and so on. so there all these kind of cultural forms that people make these dire predictions about tend to survive or even have a bit of a revival there are hundreds of football websites around other forms of football media not very many that actually produce physical things and we're one of the few who still do so and we've been doing it for a long time so we kind of feel like whatever it is we're doing we must kind of in some way know still vaguely know know what we're doing
0: you know yes i'm doing my maths 33 years
1: yes 33 years i was seven when we started